Let me get all situated up here. Uh, thanks, Paul, for that. Um, it is good to be back uh, to make the drive down from uh, the metropolis of Clemson um, through Due West and uh, Abbeville and all of that, all these new cities and places that I was completely unfamiliar with, having come from Kentucky. Um, but uh, good to be here. And I just, just want to say thank you again for your support. Um, you know, RUF just does not exist in RUF International, what we get the chance to do there in uh, at Clemson, uh, without your prayers and your financial support. I heard it said the other day, um, somebody said, we are your assistant pastor on campus that will never have people who support him. <laughs> so my congregation will never support me. So we rely on the support of individuals and churches uh, across this area and, and um, in, in different places. Uh, so we are grateful for that, and um, just thank you. And I would love to tell you a few stories if you uh, are dying to hear anything afterwards. But um, I'm here this morning, and uh, the opportunity to preach and uh, and to share with you um, something from God's Word. I hope it will uh, encourage you. Um, I love the church. Uh, I grew up in a um, in a good Baptist church that uh, I got to see. Um, a beautiful picture of, of the body of Christ at work and, and serving others. Roscoe Keeling handed me my bulletin um, on Sundays and cut my hair the other days of the week uh, and, and fixed country ham once a month uh, for the men's prayer breakfast. So um, I, I just love um, to see the church uh, mobilized, loving, and serving in their community. And so uh, hopefully um, this will be an encouragement to you today. Before we uh, look at our passage, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, which is in the New Testament, uh, second book of the Bible, so you can kind of begin to turn there, Mark chapter 5. Um, just want to state the obvious, we, lived in a me- we live in a messed up world. <laughs> um, it's, it's crazy. Um, I don't have to get into particulars about that. We see um, things that are messed up uh, n- visibly, and that's just what we see. We don't, we don't see the internal issues that are going on in, in our world. Um, they often eventually uh, surface, but um, it, it, it's, it's pretty, um, pretty messy. But the world, as we well know, is made up of a bunch of individuals, and um, we find ourselves uh, in that category, and... Um, I would say that we are pretty messed up. <laughs> um, sometimes that's outwardly visible. Oftentimes, um, particularly on a Sunday morning when you're at church, that's very internal. Um, and uh, again, we could uh, dive into that. Um, our lives are messy because of failures and shame that we bear, uh, decisions that we've made, guilt that we carry around with us. Uh, I know Missy and I, my wife, um, all four of our children right now are going through significant changes in their lives. Um, I've got one that has just taken a brand new job, and there's all kinds of things kind of happening there and, um, and trying to get accustomed to that. I've got another one that just graduated that leaves this afternoon to go to his first training for his new job that he's starting um, the next week uh, in Nashville, uh, we're a bit nervous about, about kind of that. He, did, he managed to squeeze um, four years of school into six, and so this is a new change for him. 
Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's anxiety that is associated with that. Um, we've got another son that is waiting on word whether or not he's going to get a job that he's been in an interview process for about a month uh, taking tests and exams. And he told us last night, he said, you know, I may not get this job. And we were like, we know very well that that could be the case. Um, and so um, that, and I've got a daughter that's uh, just came back from RYM, and she's going to be a senior this next year, and she's trying to figure out what she's going to do. Um, and so a lot of those changes, that, those things will keep you up at night, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of internal things going on there and a lot of things to sort out in your mind and, uh, and worry about, right? Well, and... You know, for about 30 years, I've been involved in the local church, um, whether as a youth minister or an assistant pastor or an associate pastor or an interim pastor or a church planner. And um, I've got a pretty good idea about the church. You know what? It's just like the world and a bunch of individuals. It's messed up too. And there are things that are visible, and there are things that are hidden. And of course, y'all all have your Sunday faces on today, and I'm a new face around here, so I won't get to see a whole lot of that. But when I leave, you tell all those things to Paul. Fill him in on all those things. He delights to share in those struggles with you. I'm kidding, but I'm also not kidding. Well, in light of all this mess... I picked a passage um, that has Jesus dealing with probably, likely, the most messed up individual in Scripture that we see. Certainly the most graphic um, portrayal of a human. And um, it will remind us that we're not unique, we're not special, and we're not singled out because of our messiness but it'll also remind us that, um, that Jesus has something that we can be encouraged about. The Gospel of Mark is um, one of the Gospel, and it tells the story of a king who's going to come, and he's going to establish his kingdom. It starts very early, and he begins to, begins to build this kingdom. In the first half of Mark, up till about the middle of chapter 8, people are marveling and astounded at what he's doing, and um, amazed at his deeds. So we're going to look at one of those stories that, that comes out of uh, that first half, and we're going to ask ourselves what we can draw from this, this life of Jesus that he, um, that he lives, but the, the way he ministers to this particular individual. The passage that we're going to read here is Mark chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. Let me remind you, the, the passage that Paul just read uh, before the pastoral prayer is the, is the passage that precedes this. And I think Mark groups really the four stories, that one, this one, and then the next one that has kind of got two stories built in one. He puts those four stories together, I think, for a reason. So as, as I read this one, just, just know that that we're coming right off the Sea of Galilee, the disciples are with him, and, and this is what they enter into. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go here. This is God's Word. 
they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out, of, came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and towed it to the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a crazy passage. Um, and we need your help to understand what it is that we can take um, and absorb and apply to our lives. And I want to pray particularly for Greenwood Presbyterian Church that as we read of you and the way you deal with this individual, that we and that they would go forth and put into practice the very things that we see in this passage. Help us, Lord. 
Because we'll go out and try to do it on our own and in our own strength. We will fail. But we want to trust you. So Spirit, begin that work in our lives right now, we pray. Amen. I don't know if you've had the experience of going to your mailbox and pulling out your mail and finding a handwritten, beautifully scripted envelope with your name addressed. Just, just artistic, just beautiful writing there on the, on the envelope. And what begins to kind of bubble up is, who is this from? Who has sent me a letter and who has spent the time to write such beautiful lettering and, 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 and put this in an envelope and send it to me? And you can hardly wait, so you open it up and you begin, Dear Brian... And the whole letter is written in this beautiful script. We are glad to have you in Clemson. We know that you have many needs. We would like to discuss with you your insurance needs. You've received one of those letters before? You get all excited that somebody has personally written you a letter. And what has happened is you have received a personalized letter sent to a particular zip code that probably all of your neighbors received, marketing you, targeting you, because you fit a demographic that suits what they have to sell. It may be insurance, it may be windows, it may be houses or whatever. This is the world we live in. It's very easy to personalize something, isn't it? These personalized encounters focus on me. And they happen regularly. They come without much effort from the sender. <laughs> it's the push of a button. There's no frustration in dealing with me. They seem to know more about me than I even know about myself. This is in contrast to the personal encounter we find here in this story. Don't be mistaken. Personalized and personal are two different things. This personal encounter that Jesus really started way back there in chapter 4 when he said to the disciples, hey, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. He was already planning and already knew where he was going. For he was taking his disciples, his followers, across the Sea of Galilee to this region of the Gerasenes a Gentile region. I just, I've got to say this because it, it just, it's, it's constantly in my mind as I think about this. Can you imagine the disciples? Okay, first of all, they don't show up in this story. I think they're scared to death. Okay? I mean, they've just come out of a storm... And the man with them stood up and said, Shh, 
to the waters, and, it, and the waters listened. So they're carrying this. Jesus is now taking them through a storm to a region, and the first thing they see is a naked man running down the beach. They don't say a word in this passage, y'all. But I think Jesus has got them there in the same, for the same reasons that I think we need to set in this text as well. Mark picks up this passage and he, and he begins. They came to the other side. They, they had reached where he was going. And it tells us that as soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, this man, unclothed, runs, is running down there to him. And this is one of those providential encounters that Jesus has in Scripture. One of these divine appointments. So who is this man that Jesus has intentionally uh, determined to visit here? One writer says it this way, says this is a specimen of degraded, mangled humanity. Pretty graphic. But let's look at some of the things. First of all, he's a humiliated and shamed man. Besides that he's been running around without clothes on, he lives in the tombs. People have, 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 have basically seen and, and, and witnessed this, this mess of a person he is. He's isolated. He's alone. He's been abandoned. People have literally given up because they could do nothing. We don't, we don't know anything about this man's family. Maybe that's who was trying to bind him. We don't know. Maybe it was his friends. But whoever it was, he's got nobody now. They're all kind of have gone and disappeared. He's uncontrollable. They tried change, y'all, <laughs> and he broke them. And he wrenched the shackles off. He's unavoidable. Night after night. This is the, this is the man. This, we, we called the boogeyman. He screamed and cried out in, in, the, in the cemetery, in the, from the graveyard, from the tombs. This man is screaming all night. And he's cutting himself with, with rocks trying to put his pain away. His life is distorted emotionally, physically, socially, spiritually. I mean, it's, it's, he's fragmented and, and broken up in all kinds of ways, right? And finally, you've got Jesus there, a Jewish man, standing with a bunch of Jewish disciples. And the Jewish standards would say, He's unclean because he lives near pigs, as we find out. He lives in a cemetery among dead bodies, and he's possessed by unclean spirits, about 6,000 of them. It's a graphic picture. This man is messed up. He's hardly recognizable as a person. The description that we have here is more appropriate for an animal than for a human being. 
I'm sure that there are those here today, this morning, that are familiar and can relate to some of these categories that, that this man struggles with. Some that are familiar with the turmoil of life and are doing everything they can to keep up appearances um, and pretend that things aren't really falling apart. You're uncertain of what lies ahead. You're held captive by your own emotions of anger, anxiety, fear, despair. You're, you're, you're at a place where you're so unstable that one social media post will send you spiraling because you don't look right, have the right job, live in the right house, or whatever. And it may not be demons, but it's sin and it's power and it's holding you captive. And while others have given up, you've also given up on yourself and you wonder if anyone sees you. And you may be here today and kind of said, I'm going to go one more time. I've been to church, but I'm going to go one, this is it. I'm going to go one more time. And that may be you today. Mark seems to go to great lengths to tell us that this man is out of options. That no one could bind him. Not even a chain could hold him. No one had the strength to subdue him. The community of this man had done all they could and nothing, nobody could fix him. He was now left alone to face his desperate life alone. But for Jesus, Jesus sought him out, didn't he? He got in that boat with those disciples. He went across. He went through a storm to get to this man. And since the days of the garden, when God created things beautiful and sin entered and brokenness entered, God has been on this rescue mission to restore order, to redeem, to make all things new. He's been on this mission to bring wholeness and healing and peace. And God's way of doing that was to send His Son to show up on this earth, to walk around and to seek out the needy and the desperate. And when He did that, He did that most often through personal encounters. And that's really the simple point here for the first point here. The personal approach of Jesus. Not personalized, but personal. He doesn't have some standardized way of working in your life. So when you begin to compare your life to somebody else's life, it falls apart real quick. When you begin to say, well, they've got this, I don't have this, it's because you've, lived, you've grown up in this personalized world and think it's supposed to be the same. But it's not. It's very personal to you. It fits right where you are and addresses who you are, your makeup, your Enneagram, your whatever you... He, he addresses you personally. In a world where it's easier for us to sit around a table and stare at phones or send an email or a text where we 
stare at screens and communicate through wireless transmissions so easily and so convenient. It's so, it's so easy. A study was done and, and, and people prefer, this generation prefers to send a text. Do you know why people say they prefer to send a text? Because they can think about what they're going to say before they send it. So they don't look a fool or say something they shouldn't say or whatever. You don't get that opportunity when you're preaching or when you're talking with somebody in person. When you, it's out there and then you've got to deal with it. Or you get to see the faces of the person you're communicating. It's, it's, it's a little more, it's more messy. But Jesus in this passage walks straight into the mess. And what I would say to you today is your mess doesn't scare him. He still wants to move straight into whatever it is that's going on internally or externally what people know or what people don't know. Andy Crouch is one of my favorite authors, and he tells a story of having been in, in um, a conference all day long and then having to fly out from Chicago O'Hare Airport, and he had a two-hour layover. And he wanted to take an advantage of that and, and figure out some way to do some exercise, but he didn't have a treadmill or anything like that, so he just decided that he was going to walk through the terminals in the area that he was in, and it was, that's, a, that's a big deal from what I understand at Chicago O'Hare. And so he, um, he, he was making plans to do that, and he had been meditating on uh, some Hebrew scriptures, he says, but particularly the phrase being made in the image of God. And so his plan was, without being creepy, he said, I'm going to walk through the terminal. And when I see somebody... I'm going to look them, look at them, and I'm going to say, image bearer. And so he began. He walked, and it wasn't long before he saw a mom with her children, image bearer, a janitor emptying the trash, image bearer, someone from another country, image bearer. He did this through all of the terminals, and he came back. And this is what he says. He says, By the end of my walk, I had passed people in every stage of life and health, of an, accountable, of an uncountable number of national and ethnic backgrounds, some traveling together, mostly seemingly alone. The stories I would never learn behind each of those faces. The years of life that had shaped their posture or their gate, the possibility and the futility each one had known and would know, all set to the relentless soundtrack of those two words, image bearer, carried an emotional and spiritual weight that I can still feel years later. This exercise was an attempt to actually behold and name the dignity of each person that he passed or encountered. When I read that, I thought, I would really have to slow down for that to happen in my life. To, to recognize and to name people as an image bearer. And to consider the dignity of those individuals. 
in each of our lives, there are individuals that have forgotten what it means to be human. But you, as individuals, and you collectively as the church, have the incredible opportunity to remind people of that every day, everywhere, you walk and live. Jesus is personal in his approach, but he also possesses power. Look at verse 6. The demon-possessed man, no clothes on, runs up to Jesus. And it seems that this uncontrollable legion of demons and the terror that, that, that has been brought to this man are, are restrained in this moment. For rather than trying to overtake or overcome Jesus... The man falls on his knees, which the word used there is a word for worship. And he shouts at the top of his voice, I adjure you, by God, don't torture me. We don't use the word adjure like, a, a, a whole lot, but I, I, I beg you, I command you even, uh, could, be, could be, um, be there. So not only is this man prostrate, but he's also trying to command God, but then he's making a request of God. It's a really confusing situation, and you, and you really don't know even if the man is speaking or is it the demons that are speaking. But what's clear right here, as Jesus deals with this man, is that when the demonic meets the divine, it's no contest. It's clear who has the authority. The phrase, Son of the Most High God, as opposed to Son of God, is an address that establishes the uniqueness of Jesus' position and His relationship to God Almighty. And it was universally the, the, the way that, in a, in a Gentile belief system of many gods, that they would, they would speak. Jesus identifies the legion of demons in this man, and they have little interaction. But they beg Jesus, and they say, send us away, send us to the pigs. And so, in verse 13, with no hocus-pocus, no incantations or rituals or anything that would have been, poss or been likely in those days, Jesus, with one word, basically says, I'm going to give you permission to go. And they go, and they enter the 2,000 pigs, and you see what happens to the pigs. They run down the hill and into the sea. Now, everybody that looks at this passage always wants to know about the pigs. There's so much beautiful going on here, but what about the pigs? Well, Jesus doesn't really give us a whole lot of information about the pigs. But I think there are two things that we can say for sure as it relates to Jesus and His power. First, the destruction of the pigs provides us in graphic detail the intention and the purposes of the sin and the evil that possessed the man and the sin and evil that we deal with on a daily basis. Destruction. We may be tempted to believe that our sins may be grouped into categories, but all sin is destructive. It may, may, may not always be as blatant as what we see here, but it is destructive. It's always eating away 
at your humanity. It's always opposed to the flourishing life that He offers us. John 10 says the purpose of the enemy is to kill, steal, and destroy. But here Jesus gives us a preview of coming attractions of His purpose and His mission in coming. It is to set up a new kingdom, but He's going to do that when He goes to the cross. And as Colossians 2 says, He goes to the cross and He disarms the rulers and the authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them. So I think it's a picture of what's going to come. And the disciples are going to be left there kind of going, okay, He can calm the waters and the storms, and now He's dealing with demons. He does have power and authority. But we can't ignore the stampede of swine and the enormous repercussions on the livelihood and the economic loss that that community would face. 2,000 pigs. I get upset when they leave fries out of my order when I go through the drive-thru. And I don't know until I get home. Or when I get a notice that my tax bill has gone up. My point is, money matters to us. And for me, it is a, a very familiar idol that can control me. And it mattered to them, and I don't make light of it. But my point here is that we, while we can't ignore the monetary cost of the event, the perspective that we share on it may be a bit skewed. What about from the perspective of Jesus? What if we consider this through His eyes? He had a different view of economy. And it was an economy where one individual's rescue and restoration carried greater weight than the financial capital of what was lost. In God's eyes, in the eyes of Jesus, the redemption of one soul is far greater than the loss of the pigs. So how do we apply that to our lives? Taking a shot here, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, a few weeks ago, our country was handed a decision by the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade. And as many of you, I was pleased with that decision. But I also assumed that that decision would bring some clarity and be good for our society. Turns out, it seems to have gotten a lot harder in our society as we face the reality and the complexities that are associated with this. And it certainly created a greater polarization in our communities and in our society. I am a huge fan of big, quick, easy answers and fixes. But there's something I've learned about God, maybe you've learned it too, that He's, His way and His methods... <laughs> He's not real concerned about efficiency. And he doesn't seem to get in a big hurry a lot of times. So I wonder, 
If maybe God in His infinite wisdom through this decision wants us to wrestle with His heart on this matter of life. Not simply for the unborn, but for all of life. For the refugee, for the victim of rape, for the mentally hopeless, for those in war-torn countries, for the drunk or the rich, the poor, and the put-together, for the younger brothers, for the elder brothers, and all the people who in their unique ways reflect God's beauty. I believe that one of the applications of this truth is that God wants His people, His church, to take time to consider and to value what it means to value all of life and pursue the sanctity of all of life and ask Him to show us how we might faithfully steward not just these truths, but the responsibilities that we now have and the opportunities that we have in this world. Jesus is personal. He shows His power, but He does it for a purpose. Finally, in the last few verses. Maybe the most tragic part of this passage is, is that the one that can offer them hope and give them life, standing right there in front of them, is now being asked to leave the city. They want him out. They don't know what to do with him. They, 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 they see what he's done, and, and it's unexplainable, and they push him away. They see the man formerly uncontrollable and a chaos of terror sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they don't know what to do. We might ask, how is it possible to witness such an amazing work of grace and then push Jesus away and miss what is going on? For those of us that have grown up in the church, maybe we become accustomed to His goodness and the miraculous and the way grace has shown up in the lives of friends and individuals and even in our own lives. But look what happens. They ask Jesus to leave, and Jesus says, okay, I'll go. The man who's sitting there clothed in his right man asked Jesus to, to go with him, and Jesus says, no, I'm not going to give you permission to do that. You need to stay. Instead, I want you to go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. Why does He do this? Well, I think what we have here, at least two things occur to me. I mean, do you think, what, what, it was, what would it be like for this man now? Okay, he's, he's, he's lived this life, we don't know how long, He's been this messed up individual. But now he's at least clothed and in his right mind, whatever that means. But he's far from being a fully devoted follower of Jesus, right? Like, he's still got some things he's got to work through. Like he just, Jesus doesn't just take all those away. 
So now this man is going to be thrown back into his community where he's going to be walking up and down the street and he's still going to be bearing a lot of cracks and a lot of wounds and a lot of issues, right? Probably going to be some counseling sessions in there. I don't know, but I mean, he he's, needs some work. Sanctification is, 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 is happening. But Jesus is okay to do that, right? Like Jesus is okay to send him out and say, I want you to go out and tell everybody what's happened. Why do you think Jesus is okay with that? Here's my theory. I think it's going to be unmistakable that something's happened to this man. I think they know who he is. And there's not going to be any danger of them thinking, this man did something to fix himself. There's not going to be any danger about this man talking about, well, let me tell you what I did in this book that I read, and it really helped me, and I'm a new man now. I don't think there's going to be any danger of that. I think what's going to happen is they're going to see Jesus. And as my friend from Tanzania said to me, when I asked him, why do you think Jesus sends him out? He said, because it's just more beautiful. And what he meant was, Jesus didn't leave them with a story of dead pigs. He left them with a story of a changed man to stare at every day they walked up and down the street. But I think there's something else. I think Jesus is, is, is at least answering partially why he wanted to go to the other side of the lake these disciples because it was his intent to put a trophy of grace on display in that Gentile region this is the first trip out of the Jewish territory for Jesus and this is the first missionary to the Gentiles Jesus had his father's mission on his mind the gospel would go forth to all people. And this man is going to be the catalyst there in that region. He came to establish his kingdom, a kingdom where people would know that they are never so messed up that Jesus can't reach them, or so well off that they didn't need Jesus a place where His power can be at work through instruments of grace as they share what God has done. This man becomes the first witness to the Gentiles. And if you turn over to chapter 7, verse 31, Jesus goes back to the Decapolis. And He does a little more work there. And He leaves that town and they can't stop talking about what He's done. You know, God uses our stories, doesn't He? Maybe you don't know that. He does. Your stories that aren't about the perfect life you have. But sometimes He uses those, those parts of your story that are broken or cracked. Because, let's face it, a lot of the world is messed up, broken and cracked. And the story's not about us. The story's about what He has done in us. And what He's going to do through us and with us. 
And in this room, there are a lot of trophies of grace. That's what a church is. You're on display, not only to one another, but in this community. And you have a beautiful opportunity to tell your story of what God has done. I've got a friend, I think Paul knows him too, but uh, I always uh, thought about Kevin a number of times through the years and a story that he told me. So I texted him this week and I said, Kevin, tell me that story again. And I said, tell me that story about that messed up person that came to your church that time. He said, well, we had a whole lot of messed up people that come, but here's one story. So I'm going to read what he sent me. He said, when I, we were a church plant, he said, about a year old, he said, I had a, a leadership meeting scheduled for that Sunday afternoon. And he said, I was so excited because everybody was going to be there. And he said, you know, that just never happens. So he was really pumped about that. And he said, about the time that we got set down, the front door swung open and in came John, a slender, speckled, speckled young man and unkept black hair. He hobbled in on a crutch to relieve the pain in his leg, which was a bloody mess from being hit by a car. Without looking up, he asked, Excuse me, could I speak with someone? Kevin said, I breathed a deep sigh and flippantly cast a glance toward the planning team as if to say, Give me a minute to deal with this interruption so we can get back to the important business of the church. As John entered my office, I asked him, What can I do for you? Do you want some money or some food? He meekly expressed the question of his heart. I don't want a handout. I don't want any food or money. Could you just speak to me as if I was a human? He'd been abused as a child and treated like an object to be discarded most of his life. He'd just tried to kill himself by throwing himself in front of a car. It was obvious that he was broken, sinful, and messed up in so many ways. But God used him to remind us, the church, of our concealed sin and brokenness. We were just as much in need of God's grace as him. By God's grace, the Lord slowly brought healing and redemption to John. I said, did John stick around? He said, yeah. He sat in the back corner of the church for about a month. Then several of our folks sat with him. Then he felt more comfortable and moved to the middle with folks. Came to know the Lord. Got his year sobriety chip. Moved into an apartment after his treatment program. Got involved and had friendships. He later moved to another town. He had to heal physically, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. Greenwood Presbyterian Church, you are the presence of Christ. You talk to an individual. You may be the first Jesus that they've ever met. You, you reflect this Jesus in your work, 
in what you do. And as you see these individuals as image bearers of God, then know that He's given you the power and the authority and a story to tell them. Proclaiming what the Lord has done, how He has had mercy on you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I thank you for the phone call that I got from a friend who wanted to pray for me before I came here. And I simply want to pray the same thing for this church that he prayed for me and my family. Lord, I want to pray that you would guard and protect this church because the enemy doesn't want this community to know the truth of the gospel. The enemy doesn't want the nations to know the truth of the gospel. But Lord, as we see, you have all power and authority. And that has been given to your people to go out and to live and to love and to listen to individuals, to treat them as humans. And I pray that by your spirit, Lord, you would do that. In your name I pray.